This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Maurice Carlos Ruffin, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I've been reading you since the first book. And We Cast a Shadow is a little different from the new novel. But you can kind of see how they're connected. The American Daughters is out now. It's a historical, but you do some cool stuff with context that we're kind of going to talk about, but kind of not, because as you know, we don't like to do spoilers on this show. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for making the time. Miwa, I love your show so much. Thank you for having me here today. Oh, thank you. Okay, so the American Daughters, though, you were in Oxford, Mississippi, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure this book came out of being a little homesick for New Orleans, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, okay. the American Daughters... I'm writing that book in John Grisham's mansion in Oxford. Oh. <laughs> and okay. it's during the pandemic, so I'm by okay. myself. And I'm thinking a lot about my hometown, New Orleans, and my uh, ancestors. And the sort of difference between being uh, by yourself and being with community. And, it, it, and yeah. the book kind of came out of that. So I love the women in this novel. I really, really love the women. This is the sort of the days leading up to the start of the Civil War and early in the Civil War in New Orleans. And obviously, there are some plot points that folks will recognize given the setting and given the time period. Mm-hmm. But there are also, you do some fun things by adding a little spin on context. You, you take us quite far into the future. And mm-hmm. obviously, we're not going to talk about what you say specifically. But I want to talk about this idea of balancing historical fiction and well, dystopian, because that first novel of yours was not quite, I mean, yes, it's satire, but you also play with time and space yes. and some other things. So is this kind of what, is this the space you want to be in? Are you going <laughs> to choose? Well, you know, the thing about it is that I think that all writing is writing and yeah, okay. always looking at my favorite authors and my favorite books. And I'm thinking about what if I did something like that? So Without spoiling the ending to The American Daughters, I was thinking very much about Margaret Atwood and Handmaid's okay. Tale, how that book ends. And so if you know Margaret Atwood and you love that book, you'll get there and go, oh, this is really cool. So I do those kinds of things because I really enjoy those kinds of things when I read them. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I appreciate. And you do this in the stories, too, that you're always moving forward. The story never stops. And freedom, obviously, is a big piece of the American Daughters and what freedom means for all kinds of characters, not just Addie and not just her mom um, and not just this other gal, Lenore, who we meet later on. But freedom is the thing that is trickiest. And freedom also is not necessarily a word that your characters have. Can we talk about that for a second? Because that seems that seems like the heart of the thing for me, at least. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I, there's this phrase that comedians use. It's called mm-hmm. uh, commit to the bit. And okay. it's the idea of like, what does it feel like to be in somebody's shoes? So for the people in this book, it's an unusual cast of characters in that, you know, the mother, Sunit, and the main character, Adi, and some of those people are, are enslaved. And yet a lot of the characters are free. You have Black women in the audience who are free, like Lenore, for example, in Alabama. And that's what my city was like. New Orleans is unusual in that during slavery times, you had about half free people who were black and half enslaved. And so this idea of freedom is kind of unknown to to the main character because she's never really seen it with her own eyes. 
And then she gets to the city and sees, oh, what do you even call that thing? So it's never spelled out, but she experiences it. And she knows she wants it, obviously. And yes. that's where a big piece of the story comes together. There is, there's one character that I was mentioning to you before we started <laughs> taping where I was like, no, I just really wanted to punch him in the throat. And that's, yes, I, oh, I, I, <laughs> I knew you would understand who I was talking about. But that's one of the things I get from reading your work, whether it's the stories, whether it's the debut, whether it's this book, even though they're all sort of very different in feel, the soul of the thing is the same, mm -hmm. right? Like, obviously, you're doing different things stylistically, and the stories are present day, and it's all big, beating heart kind of stuff. There are a couple of stories, especially the titular story which is ultimately about gentrification in New Orleans, which is happening at a lightning pace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to take all three of your books and sort of sit them on a continuum, right? Like you've got the satire slash dystopian slash where exactly are we and exactly what year is this? And then we've got <laughs> the stories that are clearly present day New Orleans. And now you've taken us back in time. And I feel like you've been sitting with all of this. <laughs> For a really long time. The, the idea of going to the past was almost an accident because while I do mm -hmm. love historical fiction and right. you know, I love watching movies that are set in the past, I never thought that I would do it myself. Okay. And then I, I looked at my own catalog and I realized I had written three or four short stories set in the distant past. You know, one of those in the, is the collection. Another one is in the 400 Souls book that came out a few years ago. It's a collection of African-American essays and stories. And so I was like, Maurice, you're already doing it. Just go ahead and do it. And, and you're totally right that I think the soul is meant to be the same in all of the books, even though the style right. and the time periods are different. And to me, it's just, it's New Orleans. It's how I see my city. Okay. So let's talk about New Orleans for a second, because honestly, I have not been, it is on my list of places I should go. I just, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, yeah, I should go, I should go. And then suddenly it's Tuesday and, you know, you're in Los Angeles. But <laughs> talk to me about your New Orleans and can we run sort of the gamut from you know, the setting of the American Daughters through to New Orleans now as we're taping at the end of January in 2024? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I am very fortunate to be a New Orleans person. It is one of the most unique cities uh, in the world, definitely in America. I encourage anybody to come visit at least once, whether it's for something obvious like Mardi Gras, or just to kind of hang out in the sort of quieter times. You know, there are no quiet times. New Orleans is the kind of place where you're always going to see weird <laughs> stuff and talk to interesting people. But people are, are, are friendly. It's a city that when it was founded in 1718, you know, it had these influences from the French, obviously, but also um, there was a very strong Native American community all around the city in the sort of rural areas. Um, and as you go forward through time, we have these, how to say this? I think whatever's happened in America has happened in New Orleans times too. So you have the immigrant population that is coming from Europe in the sort of 1700s, and then you have the sort of outflow of people who um, are of European descent in the 1950s to 1970s. So that by the time I'm like in my teenage years in the 90s, it's like 80% African-American. And so I grew up in that. And what that meant for me personally is that while my city had slavery, you know, back in the 1700s, 1800s, by the time I'm like, you know, 15 years old, I can't imagine what racism is. I'm not seeing it because my school is black, my church is black, you know, my community is black. And then gentrification starts happening post-Katrina after 2005, and you get outsiders who are coming in saying, we want to change everything. We don't want to have music being played at nighttime, you know, on the porch and that kind of stuff. Right. And so I've had to ask a lot of questions, like, what is my city and how do I fit into it? How do, how right. do any of us fit into my city now? 
Yeah, I mean, we see that in parts of New York, too, where people are sort of moving out into, say, Washington Heights and whatnot. And they're like, but it's noisy. And it's like, yeah, it was noisy before you moved. Yes. And noise, noise is like a gentrification. Th- like, yes, you live in New York. Yes. I mean, same thing, like L.A., I sort of feel very much the same way. I'm like, you know, the city was here before you. And <laughs> this place. But New Orleans, really, because you're writing about freedom and because Adi and her mom are who they are, I don't think you could set this book somewhere else. I mean, I'm thinking sort of specifically of a piece that happens in Yeah Jesse's first book, Homegoing, where a black woman is kidnapped off the street. Mm, I love that book. But I do, too. But by slave catcher, but it's Philadelphia, and it's just the tension is here. Please don't misunderstand me. I mean, there's plenty of danger and fraught, fraught, fraught choices that people have to make. But at the same time, Adi can move around in this mm-hmm. community, even though there is the creepy guy that I would like to punch in the throat. She can move around in the community in a way that would not be possible somewhere else. And I think if we didn't have that, we would be missing a piece of her. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. No. And the thing about it, I I made a very conscious choice to set it within the city. I mean, my dad's family's from the country. I have some other relatives who are in the country, that sort of thing. And of course, many books that are quote unquote about slavery are often set on plantations. You know, I was very much Looking at books like Robert Jones Jr.'s The Prophets, which I just which adore. Which is a fabulous novel. I mean, my fabulous goodness. Book. He was at such a high level in that book, you know, and, and mm-hmm. it was inspiration for me. There's also a book by Philip Williams coming out called Ours. Which Ours. Called, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 573 pages of brilliance. No, yeah, no, look, it's, it's, oh. That one of our so finest awesome. writers. I'm not actually, I'm not even actually read the entire manuscript. I've heard him read excerpts at uh, Randolph College. My point was, I was like, okay, so they're doing it in this, in this sort of your, uh, rural areas, but what does it feel like to have a character who is essentially in an open-air prison in a country that says it's a free country? And that was a, a big question for me in this book. And I think the mother-daughter framework, too, mm-hmm. is a little different for you. I mean, obviously, we had our unnamed narrator, and we cast a shadow, and his son, Nigel. Yes. And they really, I mean, yeah, Penny is their mom, Penny is there, but it really is father and son. Mm. And now mm. we've kind of flipped it because mm. essentially this is Adi's story and it is her mom's story and Adi is her mother's daughter, which was quite excellent to discover. But can we talk about parental relationships for a second? Because mm. they, it is a classic story, right? Like, you know, guy walks into a bar, woman dies. Like yeah. there are really kind of only so many stories, right? Yeah. But yeah. there's really rich terrain, but how does it shift when you're going from father, son to mother, daughter? It's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. My two novels are basically parental relationships with their kids. <laughs> um, and I, I think for me, with We Cast a Shadow, my first book, it was probably easier because I've been in that relationship as a son, you know, who, who right. you know, had a father. And with this, I was thinking much more about just all the ladies in my life, you know, um, my mother, my grandmother, my, my wife, other people, and how to mm-hmm. interact and want to respect that and not do that sort of guy thing of like, I didn't want to seem false or artificial. I wanted to, to make it feel as authentic as possible. Yeah. And what it really came down to was that I often find that uh, my women friends and their mothers have these sort of contentious relationships that, but are so loving and so bound up. And I'm kind of like, what's going on here? Like, didn't, you were just like fighting two seconds ago, but now you're like, you know, hugging each other. <laughs> and so like, to have that play out for me was like this exercise in, all right, take it slow and really, really be observant and follow the emotional beats as the story goes on mm-hmm. to make it feel authentic and realistic. Part of the fun of the American Daughters, and I say this 
I'm a huge fan of Lauren Wilkinson's novel, American Spy, mm. which listeners, if you haven't read that, it is a fabulous take on a John le Carré kind of spy story. Only it may or may not open with, you know what Duplo blocks are? <laughs> Duplo blocks are? <laughs> yes. it's, they're bigger Legos. No, she's great. And But the idea of reframing a spy story, which is essentially what you do here and how these women can move because men would not have been able to do what these women do. And you actually need this framework in order to make the narrative work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And, and Lauren is a fantastic writer. She actually blurbed the book. So I, yeah, I got to be on the, on the cover <laughs> of it. And, and you're totally right. I mean, look, if, no spoilers, but there's one uh, male character who pops up mm-hmm. a little bit later in the story. Yeah, yeah, that guy. He's like, you know, I got my guns. I'm like, nah, man, it's not, you can't, it's not going to work in this context where the ladies are more about communication and observation and passing along notes and those sorts of things. And so, so I mean, it's very interesting. Look, as a cisgender male, I have to recognize that the way I see the world is not the way that everybody right. sees the world. Half the world sees the world differently than I do, you know, more or less. And it was fun to, to dig into that with a spoon, so to speak. And women obviously are invisible in this community in a way that, you know, you could argue that women are <clears throat> invisible in lots of communities now. Yes. I mean, that, th- that through line yes. is pretty firm. Yes. And I mean, yeah, you're from New Orleans you know, born and bred, but you still had to do a little bit of work to figure out sort of the map of that time. I mean, mm-hmm. 200 years ago, essentially, well, 150, you know, yeah. a really, really long time ago. Mm-hmm. So you're digging around and you've got to figure out how people are moving, not just women. Like you've got to figure out layers of class. Yes. You've got to figure out layers of race. You've got to figure out <sighs> lots of stuff that isn't always comfortable to think yeah. about. Yeah, you know, it was a lot of fun to do that because I remember um, a friend let me use their condo in the French Quarter for a period oh. of a years, actually. Okay. And I found it very interesting that a lot of those buildings are still there today. I mean, they were there in like the 1800s, if not even earlier in a couple cases. And, you know, unlike, say, New York, where like the new Amsterdam buildings are just not there anymore. They, they were right, wiped right. away, you know, over a century ago. And so it really gave me a very strong presence of what it must have felt like to walk down a cobblestone street in the year 1850. Because it's right there in front of my face. It's still there to this day. This idea of like movement and the women in particular, on the one hand, you know, they're not being observed as closely as some of the guys because they're women. On the other hand, mm-hmm. they're being policed in ways that only women are policed, right. which I found very interesting to work with. And it doesn't necessarily seem to have evaporated all that much. Not at all. And not, that's not one of the things when, when I look at the body of work together, right? When I look at the story collection, when I look at the two novels, you have found that through line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you found a way to keep coming back to this idea that we haven't actually changed all that much. We've renamed things, right? And naming, the conventions of naming are really important in the American Daughters. And the example I'm going to use right now is Adi. You know, she's given a sort of very French name, Antoinette, that, by someone that she does not want this name from. Right. And doesn't want to answer to it. And her mother's like, don't answer to it because you're going to forget who you are and forget all of this. And in your Adi, this is who you are. Naming matters, right? Like naming is, names are sort of the first thing that get taken away. Yes. Like you're walking through Ellis Island, right? And your name gets taken away. Yes. Or you are enrolled in a school where a teacher can't say your name and your name gets taken away. And it's just like, wow. And right. that, that to me is a universal 
kind of thing, right? Where you're just like, wait, 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 you want to take my name away? What just happened here? <laughs> and it happens with places. It happens with communities. It happens with neighborhoods. It happens everywhere. It's, it's kind of inescapable. Miwa, this is why you're so good at, at your job, because you're, <laughs> you're, you're pulling out threads that I didn't even know that I did in my own books, but you're absolutely right. So we cast a shadow. There's a young girl named Araminta. So I have a thing for these sort of freedom fighters who name start with an A or whatever. You know, she's somebody who is invisible because she's a, a young person, because she's a girl. Um, and definitely that's happening with Adi. And this idea of sort of naming yourself, like claiming yourself is really important yeah. to me. There's a character in the American Daughters named Alabama. You know, she gives herself that name. I love her. You know, I love her. And that's she's part of her right. power. You know, yep. saying that I'm going to choose my own name gives her confidence and strength to move through society. Which she absolutely needs. And again, these women, there's so much action that takes place, but it is not necessarily what you expect. And it works. So I want to talk about pacing for a second, too, because, again, we're dancing around spoilers. Yes, I totally admit this. We're dancing around spoilers. But you have talked about film being a really big influence for you, and you have better taste in movies than I do. I will totally <laughs> own that. I will super own that. Because, honestly, if I'm at a point where I'm watching something on the screen, like, I, my brain is, I just, I need things to blow up and catch fire. It's tacky, and it's true. But... You do pull from French cinema, you pull from Japanese cinema, you pull from sort of really exquisite classics that I can sort of feel rolling through your writing. And I, can we talk about those influences as well? Oh, sure. Look, I, I love film so much. And just briefly, uh, so my dad passed 10 years ago in 2014. Okay. And he was the kind of person I know he would have said, look, son, give yourself a gift this year. I know you miss me and everything, but do something good for yourself. And so that year, I decided to start watching cinema that I'd never seen. Um, I'd always loved movies, but I'd never seen a lot of foreign films and a lot of black and white films. And that just changed my life. I mean, my writing was so influenced by watching these films. And what I realized is that as an artist, your job is to consume as much as possible and process it. So the American Daughters, for example, like I don't always agree with the politics of the creators of the films, but I love to learn about the techniques of it. So the American Daughters has a lot to take from, say, the Tarantino films, where it's these sort of revenge epics. You know, Kill Bill is about a lady getting revenge on the guy that messed her over. Right, um, right. Glorious Bass is about some Jewish people getting revenge on Nazis. Django Unchained is about, you know, this enslaved African-American guy getting revenge on the slave masters. And I'm like, well, what if I had something like that in New Orleans? How would that actually play out? So back to the idea of committing to the bit. I have this young black girl and her mother who go to the city very early on. And how is that going to play out throughout the quote unquote film? And also this idea of like, what does genre expect? You know, I could have had, you know, swords and pistols in like the very first page. I grew up reading like comics, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but this is literature. I need to have like some thoughts to, to like lead us into who this character is first, you know? Well, why can't we have both, right? Like you've talked about this before. Like, why can't I have both? Why can't I have entertainment and sort of this deep emotional connection to the characters, to their, their challenges, to their future? I mean, mm -hmm. this is why I read. Yes. Like, I'm one of those people where I'm okay if less stuff happens, yes. but then, you know, I get something like the American Daughters or American Spy, or, yes. you know, you share a publisher with Victor Laval and Lone <laughs> Women. Oh my goodness. He's a big influence also. <laughs> right. But also talking about like endings that pay off. Yeah. Right. Like you both very recently have delivered endings that pay off and I'm really trying to not step on it, but I love this idea that we can have all of the things, right? Yes. Like if story is the thing that holds you and then maybe you end up 
being surprised by something someone says or does or reveals themselves to be, that's really satisfying to me. Like oh, yeah. I, I kind of need to have my brain broken open. And even though I understand the basic structure of the American Daughters, right? I understand the time period. I understand who these women are. I understand who the very bad dudes are. At the same time, there's so much room to be surprised. And so I have to ask, though, are you the guy writing from the outline or are you the guy making it up as you go along and being surprised <laughs> along with the rest of us? Because there's a lot, and this is a really tight book. This is what, not even 300 pages or a hair over 300 pages? It's not. It's, it's very tightly written, and I'm, <laughs> I am wondering how much of the writing is rewriting for you. I really appreciate that observation. Um, I'm the kind of person where I like to get through a good first draft without even thinking about anything really like no outlines at all and then i'll go back and i'll kind of think all right you know what is this uh pot of soup or this gumbo what is it missing does it need salt pepper crabs you know anything like that shrimps that kind of thing and so i go back in i think well what what would make the book more fun for me to to write it honestly like even the idea of you know it's on the it's on the back of the cover this idea of the sort of spy ring was a sort of later idea i'm like well what if like no we can't do that Maurice. well yes you can do that sort of thing uh, yeah, and you pulled it off. I mean, that's the thing that I really appreciated because I was kind of like, okay. I mean, I trust you. I've read the other books. Like, I know what you can do. And I will say, historical fiction is not necessarily a thing I gravitate towards. If it's a writer that I'm curious to see what they do, or I need an idea, I'm, I'm not just someone who automatically says, oh, it's historical fiction. I really want to read that. There are some people who are like that, and that's great, and it works for them. But I need sort of, beautiful sentences and like i'm i'm one of those and people where i'm like well can i have beautiful sentences i don't care if i like the characters or not but i need ideas driving what i'm reading and I'm i the same get way. that with you yeah i get that I'm with the you same way. and to that point of like surprises i i think that i try to incorporate surprise as part of my practice the idea of what's fun to me is what is surprising to me and fortunately like i've, I've had these wonderful cover artists for my books and so my books are always like a little warning, like there's going to be some, you think you know what it's about, but something weird is going to happen at some point. Like even, like here's a couple for the, you know, for American Daughters and there's so much embedded, you know, text here on the cover that you should think about and you understand it as you get through the book. So. And it totally works. It all, <laughs> I promise you, anyone who's finished this book and then looks at the jacket, they will absolutely understand all of the elements. But. I know you were talking about The Handmaid's Tale being an influence on this book. And structurally, I see that. And it's just in terms of story, I see that. But, I mean, you've also, you've pulled from Nabokov, certainly, with We Cast a Shadow and sort of the playfulness of the language, right? And Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison. And Ellison doesn't really get a lot of credit for being funny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was dipping back into the opening of that book the other day, prepping for this. And he's... Like, he's Paul Beatty funny. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people who are like, but the book was written in 1950-whatever, and it's like yeah. my grandpa's book, and I'm bored. And I'm like, no, 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 no. no, no. Like, it had been a minute yes. since I'd read this. But I feel like both of those men are sitting with this book as well. I mean, they're just part of who you are as a writer, yeah? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, We Cast a Shadow would not exist without the influence of Lolita mm -hmm. and Invisible Man by Ellison. Um, I was paying homage to those books because they were so... Uh, formative to me as a writer. Right. And, and this idea of the dry wit, like, you know, Nabokov is somebody who is known for his language and his poetry, which I like to do in my own work. 
But it wasn't until I heard him read things like on these old YouTube videos. I'm like, that guy is oh, really yeah. funny when he reads out loud. And Ellison's wit is so dry, you can't even see it unless you're looking for it, you know? And I really, I love Ellison so much. I wish there was more where actually his letters are pretty great as well. There's a collection of his letters that it not meant to be read straight through, but, you know, dipping in and out of. And certainly Baldwin, right? We have to talk about James Baldwin for a second mm-hmm. because you sort of see yourself in that kind of vein as an activist writer. And I, mm-hmm. there are some people who, when they hear phrases like activist, start to say, oh, no. You're just going to feed me my cultural vegetables. But I think there's an important point to make with Baldwin, because also if you think about how long his work has sort of stuck with all of us, Baldwin and his influence on you and how you sort of carry that around, because I think it matters, because also that guy was writing cut glass sentences. I mean... Oh, cut glass. I mean, I, I feel like Baldwin is like Morrison for me, where I admire him so much, but I don't feel like I can sort of do what they're doing because it's... The thought processes to me are so complicated. Also, Morrison is somebody else. Her humor is so understated. Again, you don't even make a joke until like 10 pages later. But with Baldwin, it's like he was so far ahead of his time in analyzing what was happening in the country. And I think he's had a resurgence because people have embraced rage to some extent, like saying, look at what's happening in the world, how bad it is, and we should be addressing these things. And I'm somebody who studied history, so I go back to even like the Greeks and the Romans, of people like, I don't know, Marcus Aurelius or like Ovid. And I'm saying, look how messed up things are happening. We can do better than this, people. Yes. So that brings me back again to the three, looking at the three books together, right? Like you've got this satire slash dystopian set in a recognizable near future, let's call it. Mm -hmm. You've got the story collection where, okay, with the exception of a couple of stories, it really is present day. Yes. New Orleans. And now you've gone back to Civil War, Mm -hmm. New Orleans. And for you, though, let's take out the you consider your writing just across the board, you know, you're a writer, this is what you do. But I think it's really interesting that you chose sort of three different time periods Mm -hmm. for each project. And I'm wondering if that frees you up in a different way to be able to look at sort of your main concerns, right? Like here you are talking about the influence that Baldwin's got on you and how you see the world. And Yet you kind of need to move around for you as the mm. writer. Like mm. you can't just sit in one place. Well, you know, I think a part of that for me, and that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked it um, of me. Is that New Orleans to some extent is, a, is an understudied territory? I mean, look, New York has thousands of wonderful writers, and many of whom could name them without even trying too hard. New Orleans has a pretty good traditional lit- literature, also. But think about like like African American uh, writers from my hometown. There aren't that many of us. And so I think about August Wilson and his, yeah, you know. Yeah. Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. So his project of like, I'm just going to get these different time periods and try to take a core sample from that time period and make a story out of it. I'm thinking in, in the exact same way. Because I've not seen many books of people that look like me from my city from the 1850s or even looking back to the 1850s. And it makes my job a lot easier because I can kind of go, okay, <laughs> I think I know what, like who the characters are. But I have no idea how this is going to play out in that time period. And that's the work which creates the energy, which just produces the actual text, you know? So you're basically writing a biography of New Orleans, is Absolutely. what I'm hearing. Okay. 100%. I'm also inspired by, for example, um, Jeffrey Eugenides with um, Middlesex. Yeah. Oh, like I reading see that, that book and the idea of like, he takes this one book that covers like the 19 teens, 1920s mm-hmm. to like, you know, the 1980s or 90s. And it's really the story of the city more than it's the story of, the family, even the main character. I, I love that idea, especially for, again, an underserved city like New Orleans, where there's so much story to be told. 
Right. And I feel like Katrina put New Orleans on the map for people in a really traumatic way. And that there were other people who I think didn't quite understand the extent of the damage. I've gone back and watched some of the documentaries that have come out of it. And it's shocking yeah. even now to look at these things, you know, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, and yeah. just realize that this is America. And then Absolutely. it happens like five minutes later with Harvey in Houston. And you're just like, can we figure out the infrastructure problem? Because we have a problem and yeah. I, I'm not an engineer. I don't know how to fix this. Yeah. And look, for my, my, for my New York friends, I often will say about Hurricane Katrina and the damage. So New Orleans was, as the kids say, 80% flooded, no cap. So it was 80% flooded. Imagine New York where everything above Chelsea is flooded and what that would look like for your town. And people can't hold that in their heads. And frankly, I don't think we have done a good job of, of, as a society of really seeing what that means to have an American city just destroyed, essentially. Right, right. Well, and especially a huge piece of the community. Yes. I mean, because it really did disproportionately hit African-American and Black communities in, yeah. in New Orleans, Creole communities. Well, there's one stat that, I mean, I had to, to research this stat over and over again to make sure I wasn't like misreading it. We lost 100,000 Black people. And, and the point is, it's not a big city. Like New York, right. New York is like what, 8 million, 9 million people. Yeah, something like Orleans, that. Orleans, maybe 500, you know, on a good day. We lost 100,000 right. Black people. That's unheard of. It's right. just unheard of. You lost a fifth of your community overall, yeah. but in terms of statistically, it was a really significant chunk. Yes. Of the Black population, correct? Okay. That, that is just wild to me. You know, and yeah, I've been around hurricanes and whatnot, but that was just unimaginable, I think, for so many of us. And then, you know, to keep this sort of happening. And I'm curious to know what you might be working on next. I feel like you can't write about New Orleans without having climate and our climate emergency sort of in the back of your brain because you've seen what can happen and where it leads with gentrification. Mm -hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm doing a few things. Um, let's see, I'll, I'll go short and long. So I, I've written a short story for an anthology, and this is weird. It's an anthology of essays about climate change and how it affects New Orleans. But I was tasked to be the one person to write a short story. So the short story is set in the future in which we see how climate change could play out, say, 100 years from now. And I had, there was an experience writing that to see, like, if the city is flooded and then people sort of evacuate, but like a certain kind of person stays around, what does that actually mean? That'll come out like in a year from this anthology. Uh, Mary okay. Hegler is putting it together. But I'm writing a book also, and I can't give too many details because we're going to announce it. No, no, soon. no. I do not. No, no, no. We do but, not want to get all of the details. But, <laughs> High level. <laughs> but basically what I can tell you is that it's about the sort of pre-civil rights generation in New Orleans, say the 19-teens to the 1950s-ish, yeah, yeah. and how they're dealing with things like... Um, the environment and uh, police action in the community and abortion and and um, sort of, you know, uh, boycotts and sit-ins and these things sort of all collating together in this sort of World right. War II era, if you will. So it looks like you're just going to hang out a little bit. I mean, that is one of the things about historical fiction, right? It just, it turns a mirror on where we are, right? And if yes. it's done well, you see like all of the sinew that connects all of these stories, right? Like oh, yeah. the time uh, all, is kind of immaterial in a way. All great genres are just showing our actual, re I mean, that's why Star Trek, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the old, it's just showing America in like, you know, 
this diversity, but also the problems of having this patriotic attitude towards the uh, towards the country. So basically, you just want to be able to tell stories about New Orleans and its transitions. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, that you just, you have your place. I mean, when I think of New Orleans writers, too, I think of Ernest J. Gaines. Right. Right. And I do, I think of Britt Bennett's novel, The Vanishing Half, which, I mean, granted, part of it takes place in... Los Angeles, but again, it it's born out of New Orleans. I feel like mm-hmm. you can't have that book with the trajectory it has without the New Orleans piece. I feel very it, lucky to have been born in New Orleans because there's yeah. just so many stories to tell. But you were a lawyer first. Like it took yeah. you a minute before you decided to do this. And I do you miss you don't miss being a lawyer, right? Like this eh, is, not this is really. your thing. Okay. I mean, I'm still I'm still official. I still have like my license, right? But I think for me, the 16 plus years I spent being a lawyer in New Orleans was a training period because it really, it was almost like being a detective. The idea of the detective in a book where you get to see different levels of society, like you're on the streets like the thugs and you're like in the mansions with the rich people. And I saw all of that. And I think if I had just just been a writer or just been a lawyer or whatever, I, I couldn't have brought it all together in my work. And I have this sort of um, panopticon view of my city. And it's my material. I mean, I, I, right. like, I'll just say I wanted to leave New Orleans as a young person and like go to L.A. or go to New York. And right. I was so frustrated by not, by not leaving town. And now I'm like, oh, thank goodness I didn't leave town because I've seen right. it all. Yeah, I. It is. It's really it's it is its own planet in a way. I mean, beyond sort of what I know about the food and the landscape. I mean, I'm I don't think I'm built for the bayou i just don't think <laughs> I, like i don't think i should be around crocodile is it wait is it alligators or crocodiles oh uh, alligators okay sorry i you know i just i sort of feel like i should and i'm i'm happy on the open ocean please don't misunderstand me like i can handle myself on a sailboat but i mm, alligators and swampy stuff I, mm, I don't know if i'm all i can I'm, say is that when you do decide to visit just don't visit between maybe late may and mid-september Coming like October, that's a great time. The weather's just okay. perfect, and, and we're, we're Halloween year round. People are in costumes, <laughs> New Orleans, so I'm not sure. It, it like goes I'm up two levels that. during uh, October, yeah, yeah. so it's just a fun time to be in the city. It's you know, having survived the humidity on the East Coast my entire life, I'm kind of yeah. like, oh, I'm not <laughs> sure I can do that on vacation as well. But this idea of story, right, mm-hmm. and being able to firm up a place. Yeah. In your mind. And and Addie and and Sunit really feel like her mom, Sunit, and Lenore. I just keep coming back to this idea that I don't think they could have existed outside mm-hmm. of New Orleans. Like I don't see them being able to move with sort of impunity in a way mm-hmm. in New York or Boston or, you know, Washington, DC, which is its own weird place. But the idea that this can happen at all yeah i think it's a new idea for the world consciousness because even okay. in like solomon northrup's 12 years a slave like he's a free man in a free city who was brought down to the south and enslaved and he's so surprised because now he's this enslaved person but again i mean just imagine that you're an enslaved person in a city where the majority of people are free people which is a lot like what maybe ancient rome was like for example you know right right and i just think that for me there's a lot of story there and, and there was a chance to really explore these relationships between her and her mother and her best friend and their, their community there in the, in the city. And I had this soft spot for people looking at her. I, I could see like Lenore, who's like her best friend, looking at her and kind of going, 
all right, you know, she's enslaved, but how can I help her feel like she's not alone in this experience? Right. Even though Lenore is free herself. Yeah, but then Lenore's dad is trying to send her off to marry that dude who just is. <laughs> I'm sure he's a very nice man. I'm, I'm sure, sure he's he very nice. Well. I, you know, but oh my God, can you imagine dinner conversation with that dude? We would all die of boredom. Yeah, he, he should probably get punched in the throat also, to be honest. Yeah, well, I... I felt less strongly about him than I did. Like, I was just kind of like, I get this. Like, you know, Lenore's dad is trying to do the right thing by his kid, but wow, does he not know his kid? Yes. And I didn't feel like the doctor, I mean, I just thought the doctor was kind of a pill more than anything. <laughs> like, just a bore. Like, oh, right. This is accomplished. We, that was, right, that was this, Yeah, perfect. no, no, no. I mean, this is where we clap, like, he pontificates, and this is where we clap politely, and then it's just like, yes. oh, dude. Is there anything you really wanted to hit? with the American daughters that we haven't done because we're dancing around spoilers like crazy people um, in the best possible way. But. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't see this as a spoiler because it happens pretty soon. Maybe only about 20 pages in, we get the first insert. And it's, it's, a, it's a slave bill. It's this idea you're in New Orleans. This is 1844. You see this document on a post somewhere and it says, hey, you want to buy a slave? Here's like five options for you. This is how much they cost. It's their gender. It's their age. And I just really like the idea of having a sort of a meta consciousness in the work that I make. There's also a piece with the WPA where we get a profile of someone who we sort of lose track of early on. Let's put it that yes. way, because I mean, there's nothing like breaking up a family in the name of capitalism, but oh, yeah. hmm, here we are. Yeah. But would you explain the WPA project? Because not everyone knows about it the way maybe we did a few years ago. And I think this is really important. And I'm just, I'm dancing around the character's name. I, sure, that part sure. alone. Sure. So, you know, WPA uh, came out of the Depression and the government decided it was be, it was very bad to have people on the streets with no opportunities to make any money. Right. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that FDR and the gang put together, Congress, was let's make a program for writers to get paid to, uh, you know, roll the country and collect stories, connect, uh, collect uh, ethnog uh, ethnographies, uh, histories, uh, that kind of thing. And so... There was a real guy named Milton Cole who was doing this down in the South around that time. And by the way, also Zora Neale Hurston, who's not in the book at all, but she was doing it in Florida. And so I just found it very interesting that you had these people getting these amazing stories. Like you could be somebody like Milton Cole and say, I don't know, 1930 and meet a man who had been enslaved as a child. And you could say, what was it like being a slave as a child? And he would say, well, this is what it was like, Milton. And he would just explain it in his own sort of colloquial voice. And I think those kind of voices are important because I think now more than ever, because of social media and the internet, you know, TikTok and these various websites, we can see so many things at one time. There is no mm -hmm. single story anymore. If you tell a story, people can kind of be like hyperlink it and figure out, well, mm -hmm. what does that really mean? And what, what have opposing sides said about it? And I want to have that sort of in the story itself. I think it's really important to point out, too, that histories are points of view. Absolutely. Like we have taken, and I say this as someone who grew up in Massachusetts, so would you like to hear about the pilgrims in the first Thanksgiving? Because I have some stories. We need a plurality of voices. And, you know, that's what we are. And like, that's who we are, but it's also what we are as a country, right? Like we are a plurality of people and there are multiple stories to be told. And some stories were not actually just written down. Like in some yeah. cases, oral histories are what we had to preserve pieces of culture. I mean, worldwide, there are languages actually that are not written, that are in fact oral. And we need to figure out, like, how do we capture that knowledge, right? That's such a wonderful point. I mean, I think that we are very slow to accept the idea that so many histories are hidden 
mm-hmm. not by mistake, but on purpose because yeah. the victors write the history. Right. And so I think about somebody like the uh, MacArthur Genius Grant winner, uh, Cynthia Hartman, who wrote this essay, Venus 2X. Yep. And she's a historian who's saying, like, I'm going to tell you about this, this girl that was on a slave ship. We only know, like, her birth date, and we know, like, she was on the ship, and we know that, you know, she was with these people. And yet so much has been elided by history because the guys on the ship don't want you to know that she's a real person with an actual mm-hmm. soul. And so she says, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's speculate somewhat. Mm-hmm. And so for me and the American Daughters, I'm thinking about how, like, I, I went to a very radical high school. It was, like, yep. majority black. My teachers were, like, activists. And they were uh-huh. like, you know, Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman. But even in that situation, I wasn't taught right. that Harriet Tubman was an actual spy for the U.S. military, right. which is now an accepted fact that we, we sort of all know. And so I'm thinking with, with the American Daughters, well, what are we not thinking about? And put it as briefly as possible, I had done some research about 20 years ago where I learned that the Confederates in New Orleans, for some strange reason, didn't really fight when the Union showed up. I'm like, <laughs> all right, these guys are like total racist. Like they're, they're owning slaves. Why are they not fighting? I'm thinking, oh, my great-great-aunt times eight is one of the enslaved ladies. And well, how would right. she react in that time period? Well, sabotage. And that can make them less effective. And that creates this entire story that I, I created here. Right. And I grew up being taught history that became the movie Glory. Right. Yes. Like with the right. Massachusetts Regiment and all of that. I have seen like the giant piece of art on uh, Boston Common and all of that kind of stuff. But the way that story is presented, obviously, is with a really Boston point of view. Which right. then you go on to consider busing in Boston and some other things. It's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> It's like, I mean, not to be too political, but it's like when modern day Republicans say, well, we freed the slaves. And it's like, well, yeah, but you've changed a lot since then. Or that wasn't the whole story, you know, at that time, how it played out. But don't you read fiction to build an empathy muscle? I mean, I read so that I can experience stuff that is not necessarily, you know, something I know firsthand, right? Like, again, I someday I will get to New Orleans. I promise you. I, I will figure this out. <laughs> We're waiting for you. Yeah, but at the same time, like, I can be there in a book. And whether it's you or Ernest J. Gaines or, you know, Britt Bennett, there's so many ways for me to be in the community. And if I can walk in with an open heart, right, like I have a better chance of understanding what's happened to this place that you call home. Well, the empathy muscle is a big part of why I love literature and why I write. But at the same time, I can say that so, for example, I mentioned Robert Jones, The Prophets. And yeah, one yeah. of the things he does that is so amazing to me in that book is he makes me feel at least a little bit of sympathy for, like, the slave owner and, the, you know, the, the, um, the overseer. And these are white characters who are racist, who are holding slaves. I'm like, how do you get so deep into their heads and let me kind of see their point of view? Which I found kind of disturbing. That's how talented Robert is. I know he's, he's a friend of mine, right? And in my book, I wasn't really trying that, like, for the guy you want to punch in the throat. I'm like, oh, I don't yeah, need to Sometimes you need a bad guy. You need a bad guy. In my mind was, okay, I really feel that Black women characters in these contexts don't get enough attention. And we don't get enough angles as to who they are. And I'm thinking about, you know, again, like, what if my mother and my grandma were in this book? How would they be? And what kind of love could I show them as a writer to show that they have these these different perspectives and different ways of seeing the world? I mean, the, the ladies are all on the same side, but they have different approaches to things. They have, you know, they butt heads over how to approach the problem at hand. Well, and also writing is an act of communion, right? Reading is an act of communion. And I think we forget that sometimes because we have this idea that you like you sit in a corner by yourself scribbling madly or you sit in a corner by yourself mm-hmm. reading a book and engaging with characters who, you know, may or may not be real. 
But I do think that that act of communication and that, especially when you have to create a world, right? Like, and you obviously have given us a couple of different extreme points on that, right? We've got the historical mm-hmm. fiction of the American Daughters and we've got the sort of dystopian of We Cast a Shadow, but this idea that you have to create an entire world yeah. with its own language and its own cadence and its own behaviors. But two things on that point is that, you know, when you're building a world that doesn't exist, you have to take parts from unusual places. So even the way a lot of the women interact, there's two sources that people would not believe, but I'll just say it because they're not going to believe it. The way that they interact is a lot for me reading X-Men comics as a child. And those- oh, I get that. Like people like these sort of disparate people who are seen as othered by society and how do they come together even though they're so different from each other. And then even like Alabama, like in the back of my head, I kept thinking about, all right, wh- how does Dolly Parton sound when she talks to people? It's like make her voice sound realistic in that time period. It's a weird little thing I did. But then the other part of that, you said communion. And I'm thinking about like my women ancestors, like my, my, um, my dad's grandmother, Mama Dana, who I never met because she died before I was you know, conscious, basically. And- she owned a farm. She owned a slaughterhouse. She was the boss of the entire family, like in 1930, pretty much. And like, how badass is that, you know, to have, but not to know about her until I was a little bit older and kind of go, okay, how can I pay respect to that mentality, that sort of confidence, and that I'm going to take care of my people at all costs, no matter what happens in a world that sees her as like nothing, basically. But she to herself, she's the queen. You know, she's the queen of the family. Do you think there's another story for Addie? Somewhere down the line. I kind of feel like you're not done with <laughs> her, but I might be wrong. I mean, look, I'm the kind of writer where there's like a little sort of pop-up menu, like in my yeah. mind, like possible future <laughs> books. Like I, probably, I have like 10 books that you're sitting there I could write. I mean, I can write a version of this book that, or like a sequel that focuses specifically on the activity of the sort of American daughters and like just go into this whole like action adventure you know, let's get the vial and sneak it out of town and this kind of thing, that kind of stuff. I could follow Adi or her mother into the future, you know, without spoilers, you know, that kind of well, thing. Well, I, I was thinking of a very yeah. specific sort of time period, which, you know, readers readers are going to get a little bit of a treat sort of towards the end. And that's the piece <laughs> I'm sort of specifically thinking about. I'm like, that feels like the start of something else. I would like to meet those people. But that just felt very kind of like, ooh. Lots of secrets here. And how did we get here? I'm going to give a non-spoiler spoiler for like the few okay. people that like watch this podcast, you know, mm-hmm. this in like five or 10 years. Uh, watch out for that torn out page. Yeah, yeah. Watch out for the, there's a painting that's being made in the actual text. Oh, yes. Look yes, out yes, for yes. that. Um, the Wikipedia entry, like all those little things in my mind are like just sort of off ramps to other books that I could create at some point. I, yeah, okay. I'm just happy to know that because I kept thinking this and I was like, well, I shouldn't put words in Maurice's mouth. But. No, no, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. Look, I, I also, I'll just, I, I love to get credit with credit. Do. I think a lot of writers are a little afraid mm-hmm. to feel like, you know, if you do it, it diminishes your own work, but I'm the opposite. I'm like, it's all connected to me. And I think with a lot of that ending, I'm thinking about Susan Choi's Trust Exercise. I love oh, that yeah, yeah, so yeah. much. And it's the three major parts. And that last part, yep. it like upends everything so much by saying, well, this kind of happened. You're like, wait, what? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it, right? Like, we just get to tell stories and we get to feel all of the things. It is so much more fun than practicing law. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can imagine. You know, I have no complaints about being a bookseller. What can I say? But this was fun. And, you know, before I let you go, 
Is there anything we missed? Seriously, I know I said that a few minutes ago, but you and I could keep, we could just do this all the time. <laughs> all I will say is thank you to all the booksellers out there. Booksellers and librarians are my favorite people in the world. I volunteered as a high schooler at the library. and It was like, it was formative in my life. Sometimes people say things like, you know, oh, literature is dying. People are not reading. I think that literature is as strong as it ever was, if not stronger. There are so many great books coming out this year. Not, not only my book, but just so many books. There's a lot. There's, yeah. There's always a good book. Just be proud of being somebody who loves literature because this is a great time to be a reader of great literature. And that's exactly where we're going to end the show because that <laughs> is a perfect line. Thank you, my friend. We will talk to you soon. American Daughters is out now. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.